All right, well, welcome. Once again, my name is Pastor Tommy. I'm glad that you're joining us here this morning. Uh, if you don't have your Bibles open already, I encourage you to do so. Again, we have Bibles underneath the seats. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 1. We're going to be jumping around quite a bit in the Old Testament. Um, we'll do our best to have some scripture references um, on the screens next to you, um, especially on these Sundays where we jump around a lot just so you can actually see God's Word for yourself. But I really encourage you, have your Bibles open. Um, and if you don't own a Bible, there's a, a bunch of Bibles on the back uh, on your way out. Please grab one of those. Uh, and take it with you. That's our gift to you uh, this morning. So we are starting today a brand new sermon series in the book that we've been going through all summer. So uh, we just finished the Sermon on the Mount, and what we're doing is we're actually restarting from the beginning of Matthew, and we're going to go through 28 chapters of Matthew. We will consolidate the Sermon on the Mount, so don't feel like we're going to just like, you know, take eight weeks doing that, but we will uh, cover that briefly, but there's just so much more in the book of Matthew, and we really haven't taken the time to dive into Matthew um, in a slower pace, in over a decade at Mercy House, so uh, we felt like this would be a great opportunity to do that, um, and so I'm really excited to jump into that with you, and today we'll talk about why is the sermon series called what it is, um, and I'm excited uh, to, to walk through that with you. So in these first 17 verses, um, this is what we're going to be looking at this morning. And, and what we see here is that God is breaking 400 years of silence from his last words in the Old Testament in Malachi chapter 4, verse 6. And what does he break it with? He breaks it with a genealogy, a genealogy, a list of names that represent 42 generations of God's people. And at first glance, this seems a little underwhelming. What I mean is, if you're following the biblical narrative of God's people through the Old Testament, you're left at the end of Malachi with a, a pretty incredible cliffhanger. It's a low point, to be very sure, for God's people, but then for 400 years, 400 years, nothing, not a peep from God, at least not recorded in God's word. And then they finally hear from God, and what do they get? This is kind of like if you haven't heard from someone that you love for 40 years, we'll say 40, this is 400, but maybe in our context for 40 years, and the first letter you get from them starts with their family tree, right? It seems a little strange, but as with much of God's word, there's a lot more here than just meets the eye, and where many people would maybe skim read through this or maybe just skip this genealogy all together, we're going to spend our time this morning digging into these beautiful these inspired, these authoritative words of God. And what we're going to be able to find, Lord willing, is the incredible display of God's faithfulness through generations of people and the inevitable nature of God's good news for all people. Before we dive into the text, let's pray one more time. Father, we just, uh, we love you and we thank you this morning for your word, God. Every word of it, every uh, difficult to pronounce name in your word, God. Help us this morning to see the beauty of your word and the stories um, and, the, and, and the promise uh, that you make in your word, God. I pray that this list of names would not uh, lose their significance on us, Lord, but that we would feel the weight and the impact um, of how you've worked through generations of people leading up to this very moment right here and right now where we're able to communicate your promises that you've fulfilled and the promises that are yet to be fulfilled. Lord, help us. Give us eyes to see this morning, ears to hear uh, your word, God. Give us soft hearts to be able to receive your word, Lord. We pray that you would be working in our hearts, that you would be transforming us by your spirit, and that you wouldn't leave us here the same way as when we came. We love you, God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
All right, often when you uh, read a story or you watch a movie, one of the first things that's established is who the characters are. Uh, in, in, a, in the story like the Bible, there are lots of different characters. But if you're reading the Bible for the first time, starting from the beginning, the beginning, looking at Genesis 1, it's hard to know who the central lead character is. Now, we know the Sunday school answer is Jesus. Jesus is always the answer. But intuitively, I don't know if you would pick that up if you're reading from the beginning of Genesis. You wouldn't necessarily know that. But the Bible, as you're reading it, gives us a really big cue it tells us who to direct our attention toward. And one of these cues that God gives us in his word to focus in on a person is right at the beginning in Genesis chapter 5. So this is going to be on your screens. Genesis chapter 5, verse 1. It says, this is the book of the generations or, or genealogy of Adam. So that's how chapter 5 begins. And then in the rest of chapter 5 of Genesis, what we see is Adam's genealogy uh, listed out for us. And, and this is a way that God highlighted Adam for us to pay attention to. It's God saying, this is a very key figure to my story. So you really should focus in on this person. Now, Matthew, you fast forward, the author of the Gospel of Matthew, who, who's also a very devout Jewish man. He would have known his Bible through and through. He picks up on this little thread and he uses this ancient literary device to help shift our focus off of Adam, who is a central character in the Old Testament, to someone else. So now contrast that to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, where it says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now right away, before we even finish the first sentence of Matthew's gospel, God's words here are just kind of oozing with significance. Matthew, as an eyewitness to the life and the ministry of Jesus, as a believer and a follower of Jesus, he immediately places Christ as the focal point of his gospel. This is not an addition to the historical narrative of God's word. The, the wrong way to view this would be, well, the Old Testament was about Adam, and now the New Testament is about Jesus. That's not what's happening here. Matthew is, in a sense, rewriting with greater clarity what God was communicating all along. So that's why Matthew is using this Genesis language. Jesus isn't just a new person that's appearing in God's story of redemption. He actually represents a new Genesis, a new start, and a new life that was communicated from the very beginning. The, the connection between Adam and Jesus is made repeatedly in Scripture. One of the most concise of these connections is made by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says this in verse 21, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So note the contrast that's happening there. There's, there's Adam, who's the first person that God has made, the person who first sinned and disobeyed God, thereby bringing death into the world. So that's Adam. And then there's Christ, who in the same way that death was introduced into the world by one man, Adam, Jesus is going to introduce life into the world. Now, we're going to talk more about what this means, but what you need to see here is that Jesus is the focus of Matthew's gospel. 
in the 28 chapters that are to come, there, there are going to be a lot of words that are written about a myriad of things. We're going to be reading about miraculous things that happen. We're going to be reading about supernatural, demonic things that are happening. We'll read about what God wants those of us who are following him, what he wants us to think, what he wants us to believe, what he wants us to do. But this gospel is not written primarily as a moral handbook for us. It is not primarily a, a spiritual instruction manual for us. It is first and foremost an account of Jesus Christ, his life, and his ministry. Which means we need to see the contents of Matthew's gospel through the lens of Christ. Asking ourselves, what does what I'm reading or what I'm hearing in this gospel reveal about Jesus? Because that's Matthew, the author's original intention for us, as we see here in these opening words. This past midweek, um, we, we have a midweek Bible study every Wednesday. I encourage you to come. It's an awesome time. It's always the highlight of my week. And this last Wednesday, uh, we were having some conversation about what fictional world you would want to live in and what character you would want to be in that uh, world. And we do talk about Bible stuff, but this was like the icebreaker. There were answers that were all over the board. So some people said Dune. I'd love to live uh, in, in Dune because people, some people are reading that right now. Other people said Star Trek or Star Wars. Some people vocalized very passionately Lord of the Rings. And when it got around to me, my choice was Jurassic Park because I've always loved dinosaurs. I find them uh, fascinating. I, I would love to be able to see a dinosaur in real life. And, and I said, I'd love to be Dr. John Hammond. So if you've never seen the movie, he's, he's the old guy. He walks with a cane, and, and, and he makes the entire universe possible, or at least the world of Jurassic Park. And some people were really confused by my answer, and I was a little taken aback, because people were like, did you not understand the point of the movie, Tommy? Like, the point of the movie is that dinosaurs should not be brought back, because they're incredibly ferocious animals. You can't control them by putting them in a cage. And it's actually like a grace of God that they're not roaming the earth right now. Like, it's good that T-Rexes and Velociraptors are extinct. I always saw Dr. Hammond, like the guy who financed and made Jurassic Park a reality as like an innovator, an entrepreneur, like a good guy trying to make a good amusement park. And everyone's like, Tommy, he's the villain of the entire story. And I did some research after this. I was like, there's no way, right? There's no way. And I looked into it. It turns out, yes, Dr. Hammond is the antagonist. And director Steven Spielberg and the original writer Michael Crichton, they, they literally said, this is a quote, they wanted to explore the dark side of Walt Disney. And that's what John Hammond, Dr. John Hammond represented. If their intent, if that was their intent, then it would be the right way to interpret the movie as a dystopia, not a utopia. And so the point is, we can approach God's word, we can use our own lens of interpretation, we can derive whatever meaning we want from it. We can call certain heroes villains, we can all call other villains heroes, we can think whatever we want to think about it, but the most effective way to read it and to get what God actually intends for us to get out of it is going to require that we discern what the author's original intentions were as Matthew wrote it. And Matthew's original intention, which you see right here, is to make it very clear that Jesus Christ is the main character and everything else is going to be interpreted through that lens. Now, this is not only how we ought to move forward as we read all of the New Testament after Matthew, but Matthew is giving us a new genesis, so to speak, for how we are to understand the Old Testament as well. 
What we get from the following verses is not just simply a genealogy of Jesus, which traces his family lineage back to the very beginning of God's people, um, Israel, being established through the one man, Abraham, but what we actually get is a miniature, systematic overview of the entire history of Israel. This history is organized into three spans or, or legs of 14 generations. And these three different legs are broken up textually in verses 2 through 6. You should see it, kind of the, the, the way that it's broken up. You can see this. So verses 2 through 6 is one leg. Um, the second half of verse 6 through 11 is the second leg. And then you've got verses 12 through 16, which is that third leg. And you see this summarized at the end of the genealogy. Verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now, Matthew is masterfully and succinctly capturing the history of Israel in three major movements. We don't have time to go into a whole history of the entire Old Testament, but Matthew makes it so we actually don't need to. The rest of our time... This morning, uh, I, I want to just broadly trace this, this historical line that Matthew has drawn and, and make some observations for why some of these historical people and some of these historical events they represent might be really important for us as we read the rest of the gospel. So one of the most important people to note, which helps us understand and orient ourselves to Israel's journey, is in the first verse. Now, there's a lot in this first verse, if you haven't noticed. We haven't made it literally through the first verse yet. After Abraham, right, he's the forefather of all of Israel. The next major name that you see is David. He's the second king of Israel. This is hugely significant. We should see it as significant. After all, Matthew has intentionally placed him here in the opening sentence. So chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of David. Of Abraham. So the question that we should be asking is why? Why? What was Matthew's intent by doing this? It's saying that Jesus is the son of David simply means that he's a descendant of David. But Jesus is the, the descendant of many people. There's a whole list of people here that he descended from. So why is he specifically in this first sentence summary or introduction to the entire genealogy? We see why it's important to point out Abraham as the head of the family. He's kind of the OG Israelite. He's the man whom God establishes his people in and the nation of Israel through him. And so to be a son of Abraham means to be ethnically Jewish, to be one of the people of Israel. But why did Matthew, out of all the other people Jesus is descended from, highlight David in particular? This is an important question we need to answer. And to understand why David is mentioned here, a, a little bit of history is helpful. Uh, most people know King David as the little shepherd boy who uh, slays Goliath. But David wasn't just a brave little boy. Uh, God had intentionally set David aside to be the king of his people. And it would be through David that God would show his people how he was, uh, in a very special way, going to interact with the people of God. So David would be a man after God's own heart. You see that in 1 Samuel 13, verse 14. 
in, in, in the ways that David led and shepherded the people of Israel, in the ways that David would protect and defend the people of Israel, in the ways that David would conduct himself in the public uh, sphere and also in the private sphere, it would all be a snapshot of who God is and what God was ultimately going to do and be for his people. David is an earthly king that represented God as their heavenly king. It would take a while to get there, but that's what we need to know. A, a way to understand the journey of Israel through these kind of three uh, legs of, of descendants visually is to think of an uppercase N. So there should be a slide for this. Uh, God's kingdom is established kind of at the base of that first leg in Abraham, and it reaches a very high point of David's reign as king over Israel. And, and during David's early reign, you've got this beautiful picture of God caring for and defending and establishing his people through David's leadership. And that's a high point for sure for the people of God. One of the highest points of David's reign is 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. That's what I want to kind of dive into briefly here. Israel in this portion of scripture, has fought very hard. They've been able to establish themselves in the land that God had given them. And the beginning of chapter 7 says that God had given David and the people of Israel rest from all of their surrounding enemies. And so David is finally able to actually take a breath. And what he does with that breath is that he wants to worship God. David realizes that, that he's in this beautiful house for himself, but God, whose presence is manifested in the Ark of the Covenant, which is resting in their tabernacle, which a tabernacle is basically a very fancy, large tent. So it's like if you were to have someone who you revered as a person staying with you and visiting you for a weekend, and you had them sleep in a tent, in a sleeping bag, outside, in the rain, while you were inside, in your warm bed. That would be inappropriate. It would almost be dishonoring even. And David recognizes that disparity, that God is in a tent, he's in a house, and so he wants to do something about it. And so David sets out to build a house for God. He wants to build a temple for God so that in, on some level, it would be able to match the glory of God. He's basically saying, you deserve more than a tent, God. And what he does is he, he tries to do this, but God responds. And God says, that's not really how this relationship works. We, we are not in this relationship because I need you to build me a house. We're in this relationship. I'm in a relationship with you because you and all of the people of Israel need me. And so this is the response to David saying that he wants to build a house for God. This is God's response. Uh, chapter 7, verses 8 through 17. He tells Nathan the prophet to tell David, verse 8, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people 
Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son." When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it away, uh, took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, this is not a rebuke from God. This is a beautiful response to the heart of David. David has this moment where he wants to honor, he wants to glorify God. And he wants to do something out of a genuine heart of thanksgiving to just praise God for everything that he's done in David's life and for him and for the people of Israel. So he says, I want to build you a house, God. And I think that God is affected by this moment. I think God's words are in part responding to the beautiful expression of David's love for God. Davy, my youngest, um, she's a crafty little girl. I don't mean like in a malicious way. She literally likes to craft things. She makes me stuff all the time. Um, she's a gift giver, that's her love language. And the other day I was doing some work in the office and she's like silently working in the other room for a while. She's working on something. And she eventually comes in and, and, and she hands it to me. It was like this piece of paper with like glitter and like these um, foam pom-poms glued on there and like a draw. I mean, it was like, a, it, was, it, it was messy. Um, there's glitter getting all over my desk. And, and admittedly, I was trying to focus on some work, so I was a little frustrated at the distraction. But then she pulls this. She looks me in the eye, and she goes, Daddy, I just love you so much. <laughs> yeah, that happened to me. Like, that affected me. And her small gesture of genuine love for me, like, it instigated in me, like, an overwhelming sense of, like, powerful love for her. I, I stood up right away, and I, I grabbed her and lifted her up, and I was like, I love you so much. I, I love everything about you. I love loving you. Like, I kind of went off on her for a little bit. And, and she was, like, startled. She's like, what is going on right now? Like, I just wanted to give you a little gesture of my love. And at that moment... I think she could have asked me for anything and I would have just given it to her. <laughs> I think that this is a glimpse into God's heart in 2 Samuel chapter 7. David's relatively small gesture of love, which is as big of a gesture as he could make, right? Like he's endeavoring to build a temple for the Lord and the temple is going to be very epic, but it's still relatively small. I think what it does is it instigates in God a, a lavish outpouring of his love. And in his powerful expression of, of his love, God makes these promises to David. He says, I know you want to make me a house, but I'm going to make you a house. And after you die, I will make sure that your son will reign and I will establish his kingdom forever. Verse 16, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, talk about over-the-top, lavish, overwhelming love. 
In a culture where family honor and the longevity of that family name and, and your lineage is something that's highly, highly valued, this was easily the most incredible thing that God could offer to David. And you can see this moment as the peak of that end. If you remember that little, this is the peak of it. Not just for David, but for all of God's people. What you see here is a promise of a good king and a forever kingdom. The problem is that things start going downhill from there, right? So we're going over the peak of the end and we're going down into the valley. It is a steep, steep decline where the kings of Israel get worse and worse and worse and it is rough for God's people. If God's promise to establish David's kingdom as a forever kingdom is a high point of the end, then the low point, the journey for God's, of God's people, it happens in Jeremiah 52. They have a lot of low points. I think this is one of the major ones. About 365 years later in Jeremiah 52, we see this scene in Israel, um, whose king at the time is Zedekiah. So read with me now, verse, starting in verse 4. And in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came with his army against Jerusalem and laid siege to it. And they built siege works all around it, so the city was besieged to the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. On the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. Then a breach was made in the city, and all the men of war fled and went out from the city by night by the way of the gate between the two walls by the king's garden, and the Chaldeans were around the city, and they went in the direction of Arabah. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho, and all his army was scattered from him. Then they captured the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon in Riblah in the land of Hamath and he passed sentence on him. The king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and also slaughtered all the officials of Judah at Riblah. He put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains, and the king of Babylon took him to Babylon and put him in prison till the day of his death. With that, the Davidic line of kings seemingly ends. Zedekiah is the last king of God's people in the Old Testament. The Babylonians make sure of this by brutally murdering, murdering his sons right before they put out his eyes so that the very last thing that he would see would be the slaughtering of his children, which would have represented a very definitive end to his family's kingdom. You read on Jeremiah 52, verse 12, in the, 12th, I'm sorry, in the fifth month, on the tenth day of the month, that was the 19th year of the king of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzadarian, Zeradan, sorry, the captain of the bodyguard who served the king of Babylon entered Jerusalem and he burned the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem, every great house he burned down. And all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down all the walls of Jerusalem. So, the king's children are murdered. All of Israel's leaders are murdered. The city of Jerusalem itself is burned to the ground, specifically, very specifically including the house of the Lord and the king's house. The people of God are left reeling after this. 
They are shipped off into exile. They are scratching their heads, and they are wondering the same thing that we should all be wondering. What about the promises? What about the promises? Reminding you, verse 12, when your days, this is in 2 Samuel chapter 7, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. The house is destroyed. It's destroyed. The offspring are dead. The kingdom is in a heap of ash and rubble. Where is this son of David that you promised, God? That's the question that all of Israel is asking. It's a question that's the nagging cliffhanger for God's people for hundreds of years. Hundreds of years. This is the question that nagged Matthew as a young man all of his Jewish life as well. And that's why, Mercy House, Matthew's words to open his gospel are what they are. Look again at Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. So this is Matthew's way of saying God did not forget. That wasn't just an emotional, empty promise that God had made to David. God did not fail. Things got dark, but the Babylonians didn't get the best of God. They didn't outsmart him. They didn't outmaneuver him. They didn't destroy his plans and his promises. Matthew's first words are effectively, Jesus is the long-promised son. This is the long-promised king. And this is his story. This will set the pace and purpose for the entire gospel narrative. The theme of Matthew's gospel, the melodic line that reverberates through the next 28 chapters of this book is this, that Jesus is the promised king. This is why it is the name of our sermon series, The Promised King. The last leg of the 14 generations, you should see a picture of this, is the upward trajectory to the new high point of Jesus himself. What Matthew is writing about is what all of history is pointing to. And the promise that God made to his people and to us was not just in 2 Samuel chapter 7. You see this in a few places. It says, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. That's talking about Jesus, the promised king. In Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, and this is a glimpse into next week's text in Matthew. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Later on in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 6 through 7, for to us a child is born, 
To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. These promises of God are all in God's word. And ultimately, nothing would stop God from fulfilling these promises to give us this mighty king who would bring salvation to his people. That's what this genealogy shows. Jesus' family lineage is not a dream team of perfect people by any means. When one looks at this genealogy, one would seriously wonder how on earth would God bring about Jesus from this group of people? So here are just a few highlights from Jesus' pedigree. We don't have time to go through every single name, but here's a few. We'll start from the beginning. Abraham, uh, he was a guy who lied about his wife, said that he was, uh, sorry, said that she was his sister just to protect himself. He did this multiple times as well. David is a murderer and he's an adulterer. Solomon was led astray. He worshiped idols and he didn't follow God like his father David did. Then his son Rehoboam started out okay, but once his reign and his rule was established, he abandoned the law of the Lord. Manasseh led the people into idolatry, idolatry and apostasy, like the entire nation was led astray. He set up altars to worship idols within the temple of God in Jerusalem, and he actually even sacrificed his own son to that idol. Uzziah was so prideful and so disobedient to God that God struck him with leprosy as judgment. Like, that's just a few of the names in this list. One thing I want you to notice is that there are five women who are recognized in this genealogy. And what you need to know is that this is incredibly significant. This would have been shocking for the readers during this time to see. Women during first century, uh, in the first century world did not have legal rights. They were not invited into the courtroom to testify in the court of law. They were simply never included in genealogies ever. Yet there's five women who Matthew recognized as being part of Jesus's lineage. However, these are not the traditional rock star matriarchs that you would imagine Matthew to name if you're a Jewish person living in the first century. You don't see Sarah, you don't see Rebecca, you don't see Rachel, you don't see Leah. These are the Old Testament godly women who just exemplified faithful obedience to God. They're left out. Matthew instead chooses to highlight Ruth, <laughs> Rahab, Tamar, and Bathsheba which if you know anything about their stories, you'd know that they are questionable at best to include here. Ruth wasn't even a part of God's people. She was a Moabite. And if you are with us from our Nehemiah sermon series, you would have seen the moment where God's people are pressed and they are neglected by the, Mo the, the, the people of Moab. And then Moab is then forbidden to enter into the community of Israel. She's a Moabite. Rahab was also not a part of God's people. She was also a, she was a Gentile prostitute. Tamar, she seduced her father-in-law and sold herself to him as a prostitute. And the child born out of that, Perez, is in the line of Jesus mentioned right here. And then Bathsheba, referenced here as Uriah's uh, uh, wife. She was the one who had the adulterous affair with King David, which led to David murdering Uriah. And their son, 
Solomon is part of Jesus' lineage. What does this all show us? It shows us that nothing can prevent God from accomplishing his purposes and fulfilling his promises. God used broken, sinful people, egregiously sinful people from outside of the covenant community of Israel to finally deliver his promised king. There's a commentator, his name is Frederick Dale. He says this, one gets the impression that Matthew poured over his Old Testament until he could locate the most questionable liaisons possible in order to insert them into his record and so finally to preach the gospel even in his genealogy. What Frederick Dale is getting at is that this messy and broken family lineage shows God's willingness not just to associate and interact with very sinful people, but to gladly call them his family. That's where you and I come into this picture, Mercy House. This genealogy goes backwards. It shows us those who were sons and daughters in the past, and sons and daughters not just of Abraham, not just of Adam, but of God himself. But Jesus, the bringer of new life with his new genesis, continues this genealogy forward. Romans chapter 8 verse 14 says this, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Being a Christian doesn't just mean that you're part of like a local organization. You're not just members of a club. This goes beyond this community here at Mercy House. To be a Christian means that you have literally, legally, spiritually been adopted into the family of God. And this adoption is not to become like a a lesser second-class member of God's family where you have like all these people listed like these are the cream of the crop, which they're not. We just talked about how they're not the cream of the crop and we're somehow like secondary to them. That's not what's happening here. Look at verse 17 from from Romans um, uh, chapter eight there, the second half. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. And this is a reminder that God's promises to provide a king for his people is a huge, immense blessing to his people. If you're a Christian, this genealogy in Matthew is also your genealogy. This is your family tree, which means that you, my brothers and sisters, are royalty. You are royalty. The question is, is do you believe that? Do do we all live like that is a reality? There were many people in Jesus' lineage who lost sight of their royalty. They lost sight of the promise that God had made. They lost sight of their heavenly calling as members of God's family, which led them to live in ways that were unbefitting, unbefitting to their position in God's family. 1 Peter chapter 13 says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as 
He who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. We just wrapped up the Sermon on the Mount, so uh, you've already seen what this looks like. That whole sermon that Jesus gave was basically an orientation to the royal family of God. In it, Jesus shows us, those of us who are a part of God's family, how we ought to live, how we are to conduct ourselves, and how we too, like David, can have a heart after God's own heart and to trust in the promises of his word. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and broke it, saying, this is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. Sharing a meal is one of the oldest ways of communicating family and, and fellowship with the other people around us. Sharing a meal is intimate, and, and it can be a reminder at the end of the day of who is your family. When we take communion, we're sharing a meal that is offered to us as God's people, as members of his family. It's a reminder that we are literally members of God's family. And that's why we reiterate each week that when you come and receive communion, it's for those who are Christians, those who have been adopted into the family of God. And so I want to encourage you this morning, as you come and receive communion to give thanks to Jesus who made this adoption into the family possible. One of the ways that we can worship him is to grow in our anticipation of reading more of God's word, learning more about how these things point to Christ, and seeing how this story that Jesus has been writing since the beginning of time of how he is the promised king, how that unfolds itself in God's word so that he establishes his house, his kingdom, his throne, and his rule and his reign, which has no end. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning, and we thank you for your house, God. Not just Mercy House, this building here, although we are grateful for that. We thank you for how you have established your eternal house, God. How you have invited us into this eternal house, which has no end, God. Lord, we confess that sometimes this is hard to imagine, this is hard to believe. God, help us to see the connection between your great promises and what it looks like for us to live out each and every day of our lives, Lord. Help us to see your word as a fulfillment of this great promise, God. We thank you that in you this promise is fulfilled, Lord. And so I pray for us this morning um, as we interact with you now in prayer and through communion, God, that you would just open our eyes and our hearts to be able to receive your word about your promises, Lord. God, we thank you that we have the ability to commune with you, God, and to share this meal with you. We thank you for your great sacrifice that has washed us clean and forgiven us of our sins, God. Help us to walk and live as the royal members of your family that we are. We love you, God. We pray these things.